0: You can take your Bibles and uh, turn them with me to Gospel of John, chapter 20. And we're, uh, we're coming now to what I believe is the climax of the book. Uh, some of you may disagree. You may think chapter 19 featuring the cross is the climax. You may think maybe the first half of, of chapter 20 that highlights that first Easter morning and the empty tomb is the climax. Certainly, those are good candidates for the climax of the story, but I think the climax is at the end of John chapter 20. Uh, I think what we're going to read in a moment is uh, the grand exclamation point of this book. <clears throat> and the next chapter, which we'll look at next week, is kind of an epilogue. And what I find fascinating is that in a book that is all about faith, all about belief, that John's exclamation point centers on a character… <clears throat> who is known as one of the most famous doubters in the whole Bible. The Apostle Thomas, uh, he, he is so associated with doubting that he has a nickname, what is it? Doubting, doubting Thomas. But the reason why Thomas is featured in the climax of this gospel is not because Thomas is such a great doubter, but this man turns out to be a great believer. But he doesn't start out that way. And if you're here this morning, and you're struggling to believe, struggling in your faith. And by the way, it's not just unbelievers who struggle. If you're here this morning with weak, anemic, or non-existent faith, I'm very glad that you're here this morning because we're reading a book right now that is written by a man named John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of him writing this book is so that you may believe. So, All doubters and strugglers and people with imperfect faith, please rise right now. I'm I'm just expecting that's all of you. Rise right now as we get ready to read together uh, God's Word. We stand at Harbin's Church out of honor and and reverence as a way of reminding ourselves this isn't any old word. These are the words of the living God. We're in John chapter 20, and we're going to start at verse 24, and we're going to read on down through the end of the chapter. his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And Put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve the belief. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning through Your Word, that you would increase faith in those who need an increase in faith, and that you would awaken faith in those who have none at all. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, we're going to begin by, uh, as we look at this section, we're going to begin by considering... Uh, what Thomas needs, what Thomas needs. Uh, The nickname Doubting Thomas uh, might be letting Thomas off a little easy. Uh, The force of the Greek in which John was written is pretty strong. Uh, That's why the ESV translation doesn't quote Jesus saying, stop doubting. I know there's some translations that say that. The ESV quotes quotes him as saying, stop disbelieving. Uh, Thomas is in a condition of unbelief, and you can really get the strength of Thomas's unbelief, the stubbornness of his unbelief. Uh, in verse 25, it says, "'So the other disciples told him, "'We have seen the Lord.'" Now, the, the tense in the, in the Greek tells us that they actually kept on telling him this. It wasn't a one-time deal. Uh, they were telling him over and over and over again, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Thomas, he's really alive. Uh, Thomas, as a matter of fact, uh, we even saw the nail prints in his hand and, and we saw the wound in his side. It's really him. He's really alive. It's really Jesus. And what I love about these other disciples is that they are immediately being obedient to the commission that Jesus gave them. We looked at this last week in verse 21. Jesus told them, as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. Jesus is sending His disciples to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim that this same Christ who was crucified for sins is now risen from the grave, and the very first person or one of the first people they share the good news with is their friend Thomas. But despite their continued attempts to share this good news, look at Thomas's resolve. Still in verse 25, he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas has dug in his heels. He's essentially saying to the disciples, uh, your testimony is not sufficient for me. It's not good enough for me. I do not receive your word. Unless things happen according to my terms, to my satisfaction, I will continue to disbelieve. Thomas' attitude is basically seeing is believing. I I need to see before I believe, and unless I see, I won't believe. But what becomes clear in this passage is that that is wrong-headed thinking because in truth, he, he doesn't need to see to believe. Now, it's not that visual signs are bad, signs and wonders. Jesus did plenty of them to draw attention to himself, uh, to draw attention to his message so that people might believe. But the Scriptures and Jesus himself consistently frown upon the demand for signs as a condition for belief, Uh, and behind such an attitude is also a wrong premise, that apart from seeing a spectacular, miraculous display, I will not be able to believe. Uh, The the attitude that that seeing a miraculous sign with my eyes is absolutely essential, that that's what I really need. But look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, "'Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed.'" Uh, Jesus' point is that there is no particular need, Thomas— For you to actually see the physical resurrected body of Christ to believe. There's coming a whole group of people after you, Thomas, who aren't going to see what you saw, and yet they believe anyway. Jesus' disapproval of Thomas' attitude is seen in, in verse 27. Jesus doesn't say, well, Thomas, I, I, know, you, uh, I know you are unbelieving, but that's okay because, uh, because you weren't with, with the other disciples last week and I hadn't shown up and revealed myself to you yet. That's, that's no big deal. Instead, Thomas, uh, Jesus rebukes Thomas and says, stop unbelieving. Repent. Repent of your unbelief. Uh, Jesus is not okay with Thomas' condition. Thomas should have believed without seeing. Thomas should have believed the word of the other disciples. He should have believed the word of Jesus himself, who plainly said he would die and be buried and be raised. And he said that on more than one occasion. And though Jesus disapproves of Thomas's attitude, he ends up giving Thomas everything he asked for anyway. Doesn't that surprise you? Jesus doesn't normally accommodate a demand like this, a a sign on demand. This is very unusual. If Thomas doesn't need to see the physical resurrected Jesus to believe, then why does Jesus appear to him? Well, I'm sure one answer is simply that God is being very gracious and kind to Thomas. I think that's true, no doubt about that. But I I think there's more going on here. Because while Thomas doesn't need to see the risen Christ to be a believer… He does need to see the risen Christ to be an apostle. These handful of men, uh, these original disciples of Jesus, the eleven, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, they become known as apostles, special messengers from God that God actually spoke to and spoke through people who were involved in the writing of the New Testament, and people who are the very foundation for God's church. And while Thomas can be a believer without seeing the risen Christ, he cannot be an apostle without a resurrection witness, which makes sense if you think about it. If these men are commissioned by Jesus to be the leaders of a church that is built on the foundation of their message about Jesus and the certainty of His resurrection, it would be rather strange... If such a group hadn't even seen Jesus resurrected, uh, consider the passage we looked at last week, uh, starting in verse 19. What, what do we see in that story? We saw the disciples gathered together on the evening of the resurrection, and Jesus appears to them. He shows them the wounds from his crucifixion on his hands and his side, and he commissions them as apostles. He says, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. He promises them the Holy Spirit who will equip and empower them in their mission. But if you go down to verse 24, who missed the meeting? Who missed seeing the risen Jesus? Who missed the official commissioning of them as apostles? Thomas, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Because he was not with them when Jesus appeared the first time, he comes the second time so that Thomas, too, can be a witness, that he can see what the other disciples have seen. Because again, while Thomas doesn't need a resurrection appearance to be a believer, to be an apostle, he's got to have it. Because a prerequisite to being an apostle of the risen Christ was to be one who was an eyewitness. Of the resurrection. That was, that was a necessary credential. In Acts chapter 1, we find these apostles looking for a new member to join their ranks to replace Judas, the false disciple who had killed himself. They're down to 11, and Peter wants to get them back up to 12. And Peter says, whoever they choose, he must become with us a witness to his resurrection." It's got to be somebody who's actually seen the risen Lord. We see something similar in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, where you have Paul saying, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So you have the linking of apostleship with a seeing of the resurrected Christ. And that's what John is doing here. He's linking these things together. If you go back to uh, John 20, verse 24, at the very beginning of this story, notice how he begins, now Thomas, one of the twelve. John reminds us that Thomas is indeed one of the twelve, one of this very special group of individuals. All of them, except Judas, of course, spent all three years with Jesus uh, during his ministry, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And Jesus was with these men for 40 days after the resurrection, spending time with them Eating with them, teaching them. You could say, in a very real sense, they were given the royal treatment. They were given every kind of proof possible. And so you have the Apostle John saying things like, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, he's saying, listen, we saw this, we heard this, we were eyewitnesses to these things. We aren't lying, this is real. And these apostles are sent out by Jesus, and they preach the gospel, and Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, of their word. And as the apostles died out, their teaching and their testimony was put into this book. Uh, The New Testament is words from God to the church through His apostles, In a very real sense, these apostles are the foundation of our faith and what we, their their teaching is. And, And what we learn in Jesus' encounter with Thomas is that that foundation is meant to be rooted not simply in religious teachings, but in a verifiably historical event. More than any other religion, Christianity is not just a collection of metaphysical teachings, it is a historical religion in the sense that it is built on actual things that have taken place in real time, in history. Now, Thomas already knew plenty about the teachings of Jesus. He'd heard the Sermon on the Mount, he'd heard the parables, he heard the moral instructions of Jesus, he heard messages on how we're to live. Thomas knew all of that stuff, and if all Thomas needs to do is go out and spread the teachings of Jesus, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, if that were, was to be the main message of the apostles, if they were to found the church on those teachings, then Thomas doesn't need to have a personal post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. If the main message of the gospel is just live out the moral teachings of Jesus, Thomas can do that without a resurrection appearance. In fact, he can do it without a resurrection. Period. But we see here in John 20 that it is essential for the apostles, all of them, who are the foundation of the church, their teachings, the foundation of what we believe, it is essential for them to be witnesses to the historicity of the resurrection. Yes, we believe. Yes, we have faith. It's not blind faith detached from reality, it is a faith that is connected to actual historical events and evidences. And one of the many evidences we have is eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. And Thomas, is one of the, as one of the foundational members of the church, he needs to be one of those eyewitnesses. Because the essence of the gospel that they're about to tell the world is not raw religious instruction on how you're to live. And th- This is crucial because so many people today get this wrong. So many people are, on the one hand, embarrassed by the idea of miracles, of a bodily resurrection. Uh, They think it's okay to dismiss those things because what's really important is just the moral teachings of Jesus, Uh, love and peace and how we're to treat one another, the golden rule. That's the heart of things, they say. That's what's really important. And yet, Paul writes elsewhere that if the resurrection didn't really happen, your faith is futile. Christianity is useless. And so, the difference between mere moralistic teaching and the gospel is that moralism says, here's a list of rules, and you follow them. You do this work for God, uh, and good luck with that, and maybe if you're lucky, you'll get to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about the work you do for God. Instead, the essence of the gospel is to look at the amazing work that God has done for you. And the heart of that amazing work is standing right there in front of Thomas. And we looked at what Thomas needs and what he doesn't need. And now let's consider what Jesus does. And the first thing that Jesus does in this situation is he declares peace. Look at verse 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Uh, Jesus declares to his disciples, to Thomas, peace be with you. Now, last week we talked about that word peace, shalom, uh, which to the Hebrews in its deepest sense meant the kind of peace and joy and well-being that comes from being in right relationship with God. Now, if you read verses 19 through 23… If you you read that with us last week, you probably noticed that Jesus is doing the exact thing for Thomas that he did for the other apostles. He shows up, he declares peace, and then he turns the focus to his wounds. It's the next thing that Jesus does. He shows his wounds. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And this focus on the wounds of Christ, it does a couple of things. First of all, it demonstrates that Jesus is not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He is flesh and blood. The the same body that that hung on the cross is is now standing there alive and well. This is a real resurrection. Uh, But more than that… Uh, Both here and in the prior section, verses 19 through 23, Jesus keeps turning the attention of these apostles to his wounds. He says, peace to you, shalom, and he shows them the wounds. Uh, Those wounds are a graphic reminder of his sufferings and, and death on the cross, and it's his sacrificial death that brings shalom, peace with God. Thomas needs to know this. Thomas needs to understand this. The message message of the apostles will center on this. Uh, The church will not be founded on moral instruction, but on this great thing that Jesus has done. By the way, people, people tend to pile on to doubting Thomas, chastising him for his unbelief. But let's not single Thomas out. All of the disciples were initially shocked By what happened. Nobody was expecting a crucified and suffering and dying Messiah. They all thought that the Messiah was going to come in, be victorious by wiping out the Romans, uh, bringing freedom and independence and prosperity to Israel, bringing the fullness of the kingdom of God to earth right now. They all thought that if they just tried hard to be good, obey God, that they would have peace with God and they would be a part of this coming kingdom. But now here, Jesus stands before them, and He wants them to take a long, hard look at those scars in His resurrected body, because those scars, those wounds, teach them why He came to earth in the first place, not to wipe out Romans, but to be nailed to a cross, drowning in His own blood, and calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? while religious moralism says be good and be as good as you can be and be favored then by God and have peace with him the gospel says you have no hope of being favored by God and having peace with him by being good because you're not good and you never will be on your own all you deserve is God's wrath and punishment in hell So he sent Jesus to the cross to take your sin upon himself, to have that sin punished in himself. That's the whole point of the great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. That brought us shalom. Because if our sins are put on Jesus, and if they're punished by God in Jesus as our substitute, then our sins have already been dealt with by God. So, we don't have to live in fear of judgment if we would but trust in Him. Which is why Isaiah ends that beautiful declaration, that beautiful section on the suffering Messiah, with this famous word, and by His wounds… We are healed. Is that not good news? You see, Jesus can't say, peace be with you if there's no wounds. And now, because of the wounds, Jesus can offer peace to Thomas and peace to you. His wounds show the price for sin has been paid, and the resurrection shows the price has been accepted by God the Father. No more do men and women need to torment themselves by trying to be good enough to make up for their sins. All they have to do is heed the words of Jesus to Thomas in verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas laid down the gauntlet, as I see and touch those wounds, I won't believe, Jesus graciously accommodates. And so now, what will Thomas do? Let's look at what he does. In this moment, Thomas shifts from being a stubborn unbeliever to the exemplar of what a believer should be. And and there are two things Thomas specifically believes in this moment. Uh, The first is that he now believes that Jesus has been raised. Thomas now finally gets it, and he needs to get it if he's going to be an apostle of the good news, an apostle of the resurrection. You know, Thomas, like the other disciples, had heard many things about Jesus' death and resurrection in these past three years, Uh, things that were initially confusing to them, like the Son of Man did not come to serve, but be served and give His life as a ransom for many. Uh, Things like destroy this temple in three days. Or, yeah, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Confusing things like that. And I can imagine now, in this moment, all of the light bulbs are going off in Thomas' brain. And all this stuff that he has heard comes rushing back to him, and suddenly now it all begins to make sense. Uh, the pieces are coming together. There's something else that Thomas comes to believe in as well. Yes, he believes that Jesus has been raised, but more than that, he believes in Jesus' identity. When Thomas sees Jesus and when Thomas sees the wounds, it's not just light bulbs about the death and resurrection of Jesus going off, it's light bulbs about the true identity of Jesus. And suddenly, Thomas gets it. Uh, Suddenly, Thomas gets who he has been walking with and who he has been talking with and eating with these three years. He gets it. He sees Jesus. He hears his voice. Jesus is disclosing the fullness of who he is to Thomas, and the faith swelling up in Thomas's heart comes out of his mouth as he beholds Jesus and finally recognizes Jesus, and he says in verse 28, "'My Lord and my God.'" and he wasn't just cussing in that moment. You know, some people say that. Well, John was just so shocked that he took the Lord's name in vain. My God, <laughs> that's ridiculous. He's looking Jesus in the eye, and he is declaring to Jesus who Jesus is. Friends, do you get the significance of this moment? This is the greatest… listen to this. You may have never thought of this. This is the greatest declaration of who Jesus is compared to what anyone else has said about Jesus in the Gospel of John. Whatever you do, do not miss this. A lot of things have been said by a lot of people about who Jesus is, and nothing that has been said by any of the other characters in this book, none of them make such a great confession as doubting Thomas. Thomas. He, above all other characters in this book, doubting Thomas, unbelieving Thomas, stubborn Thomas, now turns around and makes the greatest profession. He makes the greatest declaration of who Jesus is compared to anybody else. He says, my Lord and my God. This is why I said earlier that Thomas is a great believer and why John puts this story where he does in the book. This clear, bold, powerful declaration from one who was once hard-hearted with zero faith, this declaration from that guy, of all people, really is the climax of John's gospel. This declaration of the divinity of Jesus by Thomas brings the whole book back around full circle. Because this is how John began the whole book. If you go back to the very first chapter, John opens by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Friends, this is what John has been trying to get across through the entire book, that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. And so, as we read through the Gospel of John, we read all kinds of crazy things, uh, like Jesus saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father like, you must honor me like you honor the Father. Really? I'm supposed supposed to honor you in the exact same way, to the exact same degree as I'm supposed to honor God? Or things like um, uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. But I am. Uh, That's the divine name of God, and Jesus takes that name and he applies it to himself. Throughout the whole Gospel of John, Jesus is pushing and pushing and pushing people, and, and, and he pushes this point over and over again. And finally, at the end, Thomas, of all people, gets it. He looks at Jesus and declares him to be Lord and God. And not just Lord and God, but my Lord and my God. That is the essence of Christian faith. This isn't just factual. Satan knows that Jesus is Lord and God. But Satan would never make a declaration like this. My Lord and my God. And so now Thomas will worship him Live for Him, and one day we'll die for Him. And, and, and notice that, you know, how Jesus responds or what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, well, Thomas, you've gone too far now. Uh, yes, I've risen from the dead, and I'm glad you believe that. But this whole Lord and God business, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just a super prophet. He doesn't do that. He receives Thomas' declaration. And so, when confronted with the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ, when confronted with the true identity of Christ, Thomas in the end does what all true believers do. He rests the weight of his entire life on those truths, that Jesus died and was raised for him, and that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. That's the essence of being a true Christian, the essence of a true believer. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And we see that exemplified in Thomas. Now, that leaves us with our kind of the final question in light of all of this is, what will you do? What will you do? You may say, Well, Thomas got a private, post-resurrection experience of seeing Jesus with his eyes. I want one of those, too. And then if I get one of those, then I'll believe. But to go down that road is to totally miss the point. It's to miss the point that I made earlier that you don't need to see to believe. Remember what we learned from Jesus' interaction with Thomas. Thomas that he should have believed before he saw Jesus. Now, while Thomas needed to see Jesus to be an apostle, he didn't need that specific experience to be a believer. Guess what? You're not an apostle. You're not going to see the risen Jesus before heaven. And Jesus knows this. And so, look at verse 29. He says this to Thomas, and and it's almost like he's, he's speaking over Thomas and speaking to us, like he's turning to the camera now, As as Thomas is kneeling there, he's turning to the camera, and Jesus is addressing you. He says in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The mistake that Thomas made was thinking that what he needed was to uh, experience a miraculous visual sign, that that, that he needed to see proof, and then he could believe. But faith isn't merely a choice that you make about something, as if all you need is to see a bunch of evidence, and then based on your own ability to figure things out and reason things out, you can come to a conclusion because you're so insightful. Friends, we aren't that insightful. If the book of John tells us anything, it tells us that seeing the miraculous signs of Jesus doesn't guarantee that someone will have faith. Thomas didn't need a visual sign only. He had signs for three years. He saw more signs than practically anyone else who has ever lived healings, walking on the water, creating food out of thin air. Raising Lazarus from the dead. He had sign after sign after sign, and yet he, he did not totally get it. He still battled unbelief. He saw the signs with his eyes, and yet he could not see what was significant, or should I say, significant, about the signs. In fact, thousands of people, thousands of people had seen Jesus signs and they loved those signs but they were not interested in the one to whom the signs pointed many who saw the signs of Jesus did not put place their faith in him and rejected him in the end because the purpose of sign of, of a sign is not to titillate it's not to entertain it's not to satisfy our intellectual curiosity a sign is not an end to itself A sign is not there for its own sake. The purpose of a sign is for you to not become fixated on the sign. Instead, a sign is meant to point to something else. And the signs of Jesus were meant to put Jesus on display, to reveal truths about Jesus and His identity so that people might see Jesus for everything that He is. But most of Israel while loving the signs, did not love the one to whom the signs pointed to. They would rather stay fixated on the signs. And so, the signs alone could not hold their belief in Christ. And so now, in this moment, it's not the sign itself that, in the end, stirs up great faith in Thomas. It is that, finally, Thomas isn't fixated on the signs… Instead, the sign of the resurrection serves its proper function, the sign serves its proper function, and helped Thomas to turn his gaze upon Christ, and for the first time, fully know and fully understand and see Jesus for who he really was, which is my Lord and my God. What Thomas really needed was not to see signs, but to see beyond the sign… And at long last, see Christ fully revealed in the sign for all that He is. And to receive that, and to embrace that, and to savor that. To bank your life on it. Don Carson says that faith is the God-given ability to perceive what is true and hang all that you have on it. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16 where... Peter uh, perceives something about Christ, suddenly. Uh, And in that moment, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And and Jesus responds to that by saying, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter could not perceive this on his own, uh, based on his own ability to connect the dots. Instead, his newfound faith is a gift from God. Uh, as, the, as the Father reveals the truth about the Son to Peter. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that faith is a gift from God. And so now, at last, Thomas receives that gift, as God graciously helps Thomas to do what he could not do on his own these three years. He opens Thomas's eyes. Thomas sees the sign, and he sees the one whom the sign points to, in all his glory. That's what Thomas needed. That's what you need. So that begs the question, if we need to see Christ revealed, but we won't get what Thomas got, how can we believe? How can we have faith? How, how can we see Christ revealed in such a way that it kills our doubts and awakens faith? Faith. Well, John addresses that in the next verses in John 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, the signs are still relevant. But now the way to faith is not through seeing and perceiving the signs with your eyes, but through reading about them in the written Word. Uh, words that God has written through His apostles, through His prophets, so that you might believe. John says these are written so that you might believe. That's the, the purpose. So, you don't, you don't seek signs out there anymore. You seek them right here, right here, in God's Word. And so, that leads to my final observation, is that you need God's Word to believe you think about this for a moment. Why did Jesus rebuke Thomas? Well, he rebuked him for his unbelief, yes. But what specifically did, did Thomas disbelieve? The resurrection of Jesus, yes, I know that. But from whom did he first hear of the resurrection? From the apostles. You see where I'm going with this? Thomas is rebuked by Jesus... For rejecting the word of his apostles. That's a huge point. That should not be lost on us. Thomas was so sure of himself. He was so sure of what he thought was the truth. He was so sure, like often we are, of our own analysis and our own interpretation of reality. But he should have trusted the word of the apostles and not lean on his own understanding. When Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas finally learned that because he realized he was wrong. You know, no matter how hard and vehemently he denied the resurrection, that did not make it true. And so, he should have learned or should have listened to the apostles. And so, the question then for us is, have we learned Thomas's lesson, or will we make the same mistake? That's why John says in verse 31, these are written so that you may believe. Jesus is say, uh, John is saying, I'm an apostle. I've seen and witnessed these things. Uh, These were actual historical events. And I've written down these things for you for your benefit. Hear the word of the apostles. They're saying we were there, that the word of God is doing to you like what those disciples were doing to Thomas, saying over and over and over again, this is real, this is true, listen to us. We know what we're talking about. But make no mistake, like Thomas... You need an encounter with Christ to believe. You need to see Him for who He really is, but you will not encounter Him as Thomas did. Faith is not going to be awakened in your heart through seeing. It will instead come through hearing. As the Scripture says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And where do we find the Word of Christ? Again, it's right here in the written Word of God. And this is something that that both believers and unbelievers need to remember. Uh, For those of you here, which would be most of you who already believe, uh, I can promise you, I can promise you that you will never grow in your faith and in your spiritual maturity if you stay away from this book. It's just, it's not going to happen. And there are many Christians, and maybe you're one of them, and you find yourself too busy for the Word of God. I would urge you to reconsider your schedule, seriously. There is nothing more important going on in your life that is more important than what God has told you in His Word. If you're struggling, if you're weak in faith, if you feel like you are barely hanging on to Jesus by the skin of your teeth, if you're constantly falling into sin, which is unbelief, then my question for you is why are you cutting yourself off from the one thing that God has promised would increase your faith? And why cut yourself off from from the opportunity that you have every day to see and savor Jesus through this book? Only with eyes fixed on the risen Christ will you experience real change, and real growth. Don't wait to see some miraculous sign. Everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness is right here. If you're here as an unbeliever, I can promise you that you will never believe if you are unwilling to hear what is said in this book. And you might say, well, maybe I would believe in the book if I saw a sign. (laughs) I I feel like we're going around in circles here. Uh, If I saw someone come back from the dead like Thomas did, I'd believe too. Don't be so sure. Jesus told a story once about a rich man who died and went to hell. And in the torments of hell, he is fearful for his still-alive brothers. He doesn't want them to wind up where he is. And so the rich man said, "Uh, let me appear to my brothers and warn them about this place. And do you remember what he was told? He was told, your brothers have the Scriptures. Let them listen to them. And the rich man said, no, 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 they won't listen to that. But if you let me go back, if I come back from the dead and talk to them, they'll listen to me. And, his, and the response he gets is chilling, isn't it? He was told, if they won't listen to the Scriptures... They will not listen even if somebody comes back from the dead. The Bible does not say faith comes by seeing miraculous signs, but faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ, which we have in the Scriptures. The God who you struggle to believe in has already told you how He will work, and it is through His Word. And if you wonder, well, how, how, how does that happen? How can just reading the Bible help me to have the faith that I need? That's a good question for a, a believer and an unbeliever. How can I encounter Christ through a book? Well, it's because it's not just any old book. It is the very Word of God, and a Word of God we are told that is living active Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You think about this. The same God who, by by the words of His mouth, created this planet and the stars and the galaxies is the same God who breathed out the words in this book— and if those words can create galaxies and, and, and supernovas and all those other wonderful things, they can recreate your unbelieving heart into a heart that is believing. They can take your blind eyes and help you to, as you read this book, to see and savor Jesus for who He really is, both Lord and God. John sa- uh, Jesus said in John chapter 5, He said, The Scriptures bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Therefore, if you want to have life, come to Jesus, and you will encounter Him through the Scriptures that bear witness to Him. Start by reading the book of John. That's a great place to start. Learn about Jesus. Uh, Encounter and experience Him through the Scriptures. Learn about Him through what He has to say. Watch Him interact with people. Watch Him love people. Uh, Learn learn about Him through the work that that He did. And and, and yes, read about the signs that will tell you something about Jesus. The greatest of these was dying on the cross for the sins of the world and being raised from the dead. And so, unbelieving non-Christian friend, I challenge you to do that. You say you're open-minded? You say you want to know the truth, I challenge you to sit down and read the Gospel of John. I'll even do it with you if you want. I would be absolutely thrilled to do that with you and walk with you through that. But be warned. Know that if you begin to take this book seriously and you allow yourself to be confronted by Christ, your world will be rocked and you will be changed. Just a disclaimer. Don't say I didn't warn you. And you know, there there have been countless men and women for the past 2,000 years who have approached the Bible and have read through the Bible, and God did indeed work a a miracle through it all, a miracle greater than signs in the heavens, a a miracle even greater than than witnessing a resurrection. He he worked the greatest and mightiest miracle that He could ever work for someone. He worked a miracle in their hearts, uh, changing them, transforming them, making them into new creations, turning them into believers giving them eternal life. And He did it all through His great and powerful Word. And as God works that miracle in your heart, and as you encounter Christ through His Word and see Him as He really is, you too will say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, and you will believe, and you will have life in His name. Let's pray.